so you've got to be prepared to reach out. And people do it on LinkedIn, but they're hiding behind the approach. Nobody picks up the phone anymore. They say cold calling is dead. Long live cold calling. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Hi there, listeners of the Selling with Love podcast. This is your host, Jason Mark Campbell. I'm running a little competition as we're trying to get more people to discover this podcast and the work that inspires those to sell with love more. And the best way to do this is to leave reviews, both on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. And for those of you who leave a review when listening to this episode, I would ask you to take a screenshot of your review and send it to me at jason at jasonmarkcampbell.com. And in doing so, I'm going to give you a set of meditations that you can use to get into the state of selling with love, whether it's connecting with your buyer, affirmations before making calls, or any kind of outreach. These will empower you to be feeling powerful and to be able to do it from a place of love. It is a reward for supporting the show, being a loyal listener, and of course, being able to give more to my amazing audience. Thank you for always showing up, listening, and being inspired by the amazing guests that I get to interview and I get to share their message with you. So again, just leave a review. Take a screenshot of the review. This can be done on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts and email it directly to me, jason at jasonmarkcampbell.com. Thank you, and now let's get started with our episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Selling with Love podcast. This is Jason Mark Campbell. And today I have a guest that's, my God, we started already into our conversations geeking out about sales before our introduction was even made. But I want to make sure that he is properly introduced and we can get into this conversation where you can all listen in and learn a bit more about how sales has changed over the years. The differences that exist when you start selling for larger corporations and really some of the things that we're annoying actually in a long time ago in sales can still bother us today and how there's a better way we can do sales and hopefully for everybody on this conversation are going to adapt some of the better qualities and principles in sales that'll make you more effective and a lot less annoying but also not compromising on the results that you want so the guest that i have today is clive miller he's the founder of sales sense specialized in serving the needs of companies involving complex sales to businesses and organizations the company contributes through consulting sales team evaluation assessment training coaching and enablement services since starting sales sense clive authored over 20 training courses from communication management leadership topics has worked with clients such as world check encode handheld products and wheel he's a consultant sales trainer speaker coach and work with hundreds of companies since his sales career began in 1977. And so he's here with us to share wisdom, best practices, and timeless ways that have always been effective and probably are even more effective now. Clive, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Clive, we were just talking before we hit record and I was like, wait, wait, we need to probably talk about this. But we talk about how the internet's come in. We have platforms like LinkedIn And you're a salesperson, yet now you're seeing that on a digital space, people are unapologetic. They're pitching you all the time, direct messages to buy a bunch of stuff 
on LinkedIn. What's going on that you're supposed to be a salesperson? I thought you'd enjoy a bunch of people just randomly pitching you all the time. What are you experiencing right now? <laughs> uh, well, to me, the networking tools, you don't get involved in networking to invite people to hit you with sales pitches, really. And there's two major assumptions that are being made whenever anybody hits you with a sales pitch. I'm used to my inbox being stuffed full of people pitching stuff. That's normal. But when it comes at you through what essentially is meant to be a networking tool, it can be annoying. I find it a little bit irritating because people don't take the trouble to establish need and they don't take the trouble to establish trust. And there is not a one in 10 chance or even a one in 100 chance that I'm going to buy something from somebody on the basis of a pitch coming at me via LinkedIn. So I don't know. Some people seem to say they say it works. So I don't know how it's working for them, but that's my perspective on it. When I want something, I tend to look out in the market and try and find what the best options are. And sometimes I'll investigate based on say, people saying, hey, look at this. But I'm not very responsive to people pitching at me on LinkedIn without establishing need or trust. I find it interesting that we had technology evolve and you would think that it would allow us to become better at sales. But it seems like the habit was actually used to cut the important parts of the sale, trying to do some of the things to get in front of people that make it less humane. So it almost feels like we regressed in sale. Would you mirror that sentiment or do you have a different opinion of how technology evolved it? Absolutely. You have to find a comparable organization to ask this question. You say, what's the average yield of a salesperson now compared with, say, 1995 or even 1975 for that matter? So I can think back to my first sales target. It was actually 1979. It was about 700K a year I was supposed to bring in. And that was for Intel components. And then I moved into a different territory, into the London area. And I had a higher target, about one and a half million. And then I had a stint as a product manager, product marketing manager, and then came back into sales with Sun Microsystems. And the target was 1.2 million, I think, to start with. This would have been 1984, 85. And then through four years at Sun and then eight years, or six, eight years at Silicon Graphics. And towards the end of my time at Silicon Graphics, we had some salespeople with targets. Okay, it's high value kit, high value computer kit, average sale might be 30 or 40K. A big sale could be millions. But average, the sales yield or targets they had were around about 1.82 million, as I recall. And this would have been 1995-ish. And look at what they are now. And they aren't any higher. That's my perception anyway. And if they are any higher, why are we spending all this money on tech if it's not doing us any good? It's one of the things you'd say, okay, let's get a CRM system, let's get some Salesforce automation, let's get some of this you know, really cool tech that's out there. There's a lot of it, and it makes sense, right? But then you should put the targets up because it should be easier to get the numbers in, right? That's the ROI. That's the justification for it. And it's very, very hard to see, very, very hard to prove, I think. Uh, so has it changed with the internet? Well, yeah, absolutely. There's lots of other routes, but you still have to reach out to somebody. You've still got to establish need, build trust and say hello and say, you know, can we talk? And there might be something that can improve your business here. So you've got to be prepared to reach out. And people do it on LinkedIn, but they're hiding behind the approach. Nobody picks up the phone anymore. They say cold calling is dead. Long live cold calling. <laughs> 
I love that you actually had a chance to see that evolution and see that there's actually not been an improvement in the numbers. That's shocking. And you sell something that's quite different than my experience. I mean, I've been more in the B2C side, very quick cycle of sales. And I'd just be curious to know, like, how was the cycle of you selling like technology product? Like, can you give us an example of what a sale would look like if you're going out there and selling? I don't know what a typical price point of a product was, but you'd go out there, you'd have a list of clients, you'd have to find a potential client. What would that look like? It's a difficult question to answer because you have to settle on one particular example. The main difference that you have between B2C and B2B, if you're selling to a person who's buying on their own behalf, you're talking to a decision maker. Or perhaps you're talking to a couple, so it's a good idea to have them both there, right? But it's not very complex. They can say yes or no. And they can say yes or no on the basis of an emotional connection, what their wants and needs are, all sorts of things. So you have a much more direct conversation. In a B2B scenario, depending on the scale of what you're selling and the discretionary spend capability of the people you're talking to, they could be anywhere from one, let's say I'm selling a laptop to a CEO, and yeah, most CEOs as well within their discretionary spend, and it's just up to the CEO to decide what they're going to buy in terms of personal tech. Or you could be trying to sell something that has an impact on the whole business, And if you're selling something that has an impact on the whole business, then every corner of that business is interested in whether it's any good or not, right? So you've got a whole plethora of influencers and decision influencers. I divide them up. There's the official decision maker. The official decision maker has always got, even if it's the stakeholders, the investors, they've always got a boss of some kind, right? I call it the person who doesn't necessarily overrule the decision, but could if they wanted to call that veto, There's usually an appointed assessment team. So uh, you don't just rely on your judgment when you're in a senior position to say yes or no. You get a team of assessors that are supposed to investigate all the details and give you recommendations, right? And then you have the users. The people have to get their jobs done with what gets bought. And then you have outside of that, you have people who are not necessarily directly involved who have a stake or an interest because of their personal connections or their friendships or they're a consultant. The, I often do this as a process in a classroom, say, who else, who else, who else? And, of course, the opposition is the competitive sales guy has got to be in there trying to influence it, right? If he's not, he's not doing his job. Or if he or she is not doing that, they're not doing their jobs. And so you, too, have to be on that influencer network, if you like. Then you have the approvers, right? They're the people who have to make sure that the organization's policies and procedures rules are followed. So you've got this map of people that are all interested in the outcome and have some stake in it to some extent. And you say, well, do you understand how the decision's going to be made? Well, it's pretty difficult to really know. That's what faces a B2B sales guy. That's why it can take simple things, might just take a, you know, a quick decision, one or two days, but it could be five years. So if you're selling a fleet of aeroplanes, for instance, that's quite complicated, quite a big decision. It's planned well in advance. If you're buying anything that impacts the whole overall business performance, so, you'll, so if it's a business that is going to make a change that could make or break their business or certainly contribute to their performance in some way, you can bet they're going to take it fairly seriously and it can be a long sales cycle. So that's the major difference that you'll experience going from B2C to B2B. I find that it's such an interesting 
management of so many different personalities, emotions, a life system of the business itself, it definitely adds a level of interestingness to a single sale. And, you know, as a representative, it's like every sale has a lot more weight than when you're just working through numbers in the B2C world, which out of personal interest, I'd love to know, Clive, if you have one of your favorite sales like i don't know if you're in a liberty of disclosing this but do you have one of the sales you've made one of these big complicated sales that you were like that was a celebration of success and a joy of going through that process does any example come to mind in my day so i've worked for myself for 25 years now most of the time anyway so the last time i carried a quota i had a team it was 1996 and i had a team of about 26 people and that full year, 1995 it was, that full year, we did 39 million with 25 or so salespeople and some other people in that net as well. So I can pick some things within there. If you go back to my time in sales, I go all the way back to about 1985, 86. And I'd say I organized an OEM contract with the Raycall group of companies that was worth about 2 million. And that was on the back of having worked with a number of different Raycall companies across the south of the UK anyway. Most people never even heard of Raycall now. They don't exist as they were then. They're all called different things. It was kind of a a huge technically orientating company. The last bit of it, I became part of Talis. They were manufacturing the army-based, army radio systems, the army communication systems. And so... I'm thinking of the Raycall OEM agreement, which is prior to that. The radio system thing with Raycall was after I left and became a sales trainer, and that was training sales teams within the Raycall organization. That was about 99, 2000, somewhere around there. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, really. How long did the OEM contract take? About three years, all told, because it was a realization that they were buying enough of the stuff to make it worthwhile having an umbrella agreement. And then somebody with a vision inside their organization and a vision inside our organization to put the two things together. And so you're more like a project manager. There are lots of stereotypes in selling. The classic is the used car salesman. It's not fair, really, but if you're a used car salesman, you can't let them get off the lot. Because once they've gone off the lot, you've lost them. Right. So it's a whole different dynamic. If you're trying to stay focused on getting work done and eating throughout the day is something you think about, have to decide, and you're not sure what to do, and you just wish an option was available where the right meal with all of the specifications you want be available to you, easy to make, under two minutes... Well, luckily for you, Factor is available where you have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie. And you can enjoy over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons to help you make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for? You can get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking up for something fast that's upscale option done very easily. It's flexible on your schedule where you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. No prep necessary. They're 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup necessary. Head to factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and use code sellingwithlove50 to get 50% off. That's code sellingwithlove50 at factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and you'll get 50% off. Not bad. 
did I answer your question in some sort of way? You made me even more curious about how these deals work, but it's like you spend three years, you have a vision. It's almost like every sale is a little business plan of an idea, a vision, and then bringing together a team, solving a giant problem with a unique solution that's within the realms of your capabilities, and then just getting all the way to the point of saying like, hey, are we moving forward with this mini business? Like that's how I'm seeing it. And I don't know if that makes sense. That's a wonderful way of putting it. It's exactly right, yes. <laughs> so I find that, you know, giving the title of a salesperson in that type of sale is such an underwhelming title because you become a CEO, you become a HR specialist, you become a salesperson, a marketer, you're doing all sorts of things. And I think that I'm hoping for people that are listening are realizing that when you're talking about sophisticated sales individuals for these types of accounts, it's going into a whole new set of skills that you need to develop to be successful into this. And that kind of brings me to the trainings that you mostly do. When we're talking about training people at that level, what are some of the things that we should be paying more attention to? Already, I think I've picked up that the technology doesn't play as big a role as we think, but what are the things we should continue to pay close attention to when we want to be great, sophisticated sales individuals? It's almost a whole career development thing. It depends where you're starting from, really. Not all my customers are involved in what I call a complex sale, where everybody in the customer's organization is interested. Everybody in the seller's organization is interested. So it's high value complex sale uh, down to what I call warrior selling, which means that you got relatively low value and you can do everything yourself. So, and if we take it down to B2C level, you can go down to, well, somebody in a shop is selling. Somebody who's a shop assistant is still selling, right? And they have an impact on the results that they get. And right the way through to somebody who effectively is called a salesperson, but is selling IBM in the old days, IBM mainframes or a data center refresh, let's say, which perhaps costs a couple of million pounds. And yes, you're orchestrating a major project. And it's a bit like making a film because you pull together a bunch of people who work on that particular project and you either succeed or you don't. And then you all go to the four winds again and you start another one. Or maybe you're doing two or three or four in parallel. So, yeah, it's quite a complex job. So, I mean, there's a big difference in what you get paid for it as well. So. And when we look at the world of sales today, you know, you did a lot of these complex sales back in the past. Are we seeing that the level of complexity of deals is getting even more complex? Or do you feel like the technology and the types of problems we have today can be solved with less sales involvement? What are we seeing? In the old days... B2B customers used to need the salespeople to be a source of knowledge, to be a source of information. So in my first sales job, I drove around in a Cortina estate and the back was jammed packed with white papers and component manuals and books that describe all the technical details of the stuff. And so part of your token for entry, would you um, quite often the engineers would come out to your car in the car park afterwards to see what they could lift out of the boot that they were interested in, right? And that was kind of a, a token of access. This is for electronics components. And so today that's changed vastly because there is no longer a need for the customer to talk to salespeople like they used to be back in the late 80s, which is my early experience. And so unless you are able to get involved in their discussion of the problems that they have, you're relegated to only talking to them when they want to talk to you, which is three quarters of the way down their buying process. 
So the only way for salespeople to stay involved is to establish themselves as a thought leaders, expertise, whatever, on solving problems that whatever it is you sell can solve and get involved with the customers at that stage before they even know they're going to buy anything. There's two kinds of pain. There's the pain when you know you've got a pain and you know there are solutions out there, you're actively looking for a solution. Right? So, so that's one kind of place to go and sell. But that's always going to be down the pipe after they've established their buying process and you're up against competitors, et cetera, et cetera. The time that you can really influence the outcome is much earlier when they know that they've got a pain, but they're living with it. Right? They don't know that there's a solution to be had out there. And so that's where the opportunity is before they get to the point of starting a buying process. Otherwise, you're going to be just competing with every other person out there who has the potential to solve that problem for them. And quite often, they will have done a study of the market, much as I said, speaking before the recording was on, and I said, well, then 10 people come at me without establishing trust or need. You've got to be able to get in and establish that trust and need by talking about the issues that they're trying to solve and then shepherding in or helping them, helping them buy, if you like. There's a lady in the US, I don't know if she's still active, called Sharon Drew Morgan, if I've got her name correctly. And she coined the phrase for this. She called it buyer facilitation right? and put together training about it and so on. It was very interesting and very powerful stuff. But that's exactly what you have to do. You have to help people buy from the point of view of having a problem and how do you solve that problem. I can talk about this for hours and hours if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask from your perspective, we started talking about LinkedIn and how there's a lot of people that are just going out there, sending generic messages, not building any of that rapport, that trust, that understanding. If you could actually wave a magic wand and the people would reach out to you in the proper way, the way that you speak about, what would be things that would be done that would make it so much more effective? I think you just have to be open. It's the long game. All the LinkedIn specialists out there will say the same thing, all the ones I've talked to anyway. They all say it's a long game. Right? You build relationships with people by connecting with them, by expressing an interest in what they're doing, finding common ground, finding a way to establish communication. And that communication often doesn't happen on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a substrate, if you like, a platform in which you can get things started, but the real conversations don't necessarily happen on LinkedIn. It's a vehicle for building relationships. If you use it that way and you use it to add value and demonstrate your expertise and that you've got solutions to problems, then people tend to find you. So it's a platform for content marketing. You could see it that way. So if you use your posts on LinkedIn, to produce content that people who are trying to grapple with the things that you fix recognize as being helpful to them, then they begin to see you as an expert and they begin to be more interested and begin to follow you and so on. So that's the theory behind it. Does it work? It works in some places for some people in some industries and some verticals very, very well and others not so well. So you can't say here's a magic formula. This is where you do it because it depends on your particular circumstances, your sales environment, and a whole bunch of other factors. I tend to say about prospecting. You know, what you've opened up, Clive, is the fact that there's so many differences that happen in sales based on the scale of the sale, the type of sales you're making, the products you're selling, that trying to put it in a single box just does not do justice to the diversity of the profession as a whole. 
And what we've been able to see as well, I'm just fascinated with the fact that the quotas haven't went as high as much as the efficiencies that they said people would have should justify the higher quotas. So we're seeing that a lot of the fundamentals that have been there since the times you started are still the fundamentals that really move the needle. So it sounds like there's a lot more opportunity for distraction in a world that really is about solving problems, understanding each other and having that connection happen. Clive, I wanted to ask one more question that I love to ask the guests that do come on my show, which is you're on the Selling with Love podcast. So I'd love to hear what would selling with love mean to you? There are two ways to succeed at selling, I think. And both of them have some issues, right? You can either believe that you have a solution for people's problems and not try and sell to people unless you convince that you can sell them something that's going to help them. So to me, that would be the selling with love end, right? That says, I'm here to solve problems. If I can't see how I can add some value, thanks. Be nice talking to you. Maybe we'll stay in touch, but it's not. You don't try and sell stuff to people where it's no use to them. The other way is you have this attitude where it's my job to sell this stuff. I don't really care if it's right for you or not. I'm just going to do everything I can to make sure that you buy as much of this stuff as I can get in front of you. Both work. One's like saying, I know better than you do what you need. So it's almost like playing God. It's not quite comfortable, is it? Right. The other one is, I don't care whether it's good for you or not. Right. So I've had people with both perspectives in my sales teams going back more than 20 years now, and both have been successful. So there are multiple ways to make a sales career work. But selling with love for me is caring about the outcome. It's simple. If I don't think what I'm offering is, so we offer a guarantee. We say, if, if you don't think you've got five times what you paid for it out of value, out of doing the things that we recommend you do in our training and coaching and consulting, then you can ask for your money back and we won't ask any questions. We'll just say, yep, okay, here you go. Five, I love that you actually brought that dynamic that you can actually have different mindsets in selling that are successful. In the way that I speak about it, you know, I talk about how there is this, I actually call it the fear pride paradox. When you just sell, you don't care about the impact, you just sell and you love this aspect of selling, but it's a very self-centered way of selling and it works. But I am trying to see if more people, although you've challenged my idea here, because when people say like, I'll only sell it when I know it's going to have value, having this dynamic that you suggested here saying you kind of playing God, make sure that people don't get delusional with their own beliefs, with the power of their own solution, and want to at least make sure that they keep their foot on the ground and realize that you need to still connect, you need to have conversation, and you need to actually give everyone a chance and to learn more about what they're facing to see if you truly can help them. Clive, I love the wisdom that you've brought and the experience that you have when it comes to all these different products and the trainings you do in sales. And for everybody listening, realizing that there's so many different things you can do in sales, so many different products, so many different specialties, some of them of a high volume. And as Clive defined as sales warriors that just go out there and move product to complete project managers and CEOs of mini business deals that truly enable massive transformation between two companies, a seller and a buyer. And that brings a lot of partners, et cetera. And when those complicated deals happen, those could take years and your roles as a salesperson would be completely different than someone that's picking up the phone, dialing numbers. So when you think of sales, don't just label it as the used car salesman. Understand that this is a vast industry that has so many different categories that whatever passion you might have in sales, 
you could probably find it. And you'll realize that there's so many people you can look up to, learn from, that can speak specifically to the type of sales that you wanna make and realize that in your business, there's a particular way that you're gonna sell and that's okay. And with people like Clive that bring their experience and do further trainings, whether it's sales leaders, sales teams, sales individuals, when you get better educated on how to be more effective at traditionally connecting with people, that's truly what makes the difference. The new technologies, they can be great, but they create a lot of noise and chaos. The most important things that still remain is going out there, solving problems, connecting with people, and doing it in a way that solves those problems. Clive, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for sharing everything. And everyone here, go sell with love in the way that selling with love means to you. Thank you, Jason, and thanks for that wonderful summary. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.